We're going to read the book of Exodus chapter 33, verse 12, until chapter 34, verse 14. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, Lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, 
I'm making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. Be careful not make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or there will be a snare among you. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Thanks, Maker. Uh, that's your cue. If you're in youth church, that's year five to year eight. It's your chance to head out with Brent and Darcy, it looks like. Um, if you're new or visiting today, it's a really special welcome to you. It's great to have you along. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Wagga Evangelical Church. And uh, we're just delighted that, you, that you're here along with us. So we hope that you feel not just welcome, but encouraged as we uh, read God's word today. And as you've heard, we're in the end of the very end of our series on Exodus, which has just been fascinating, um, surprising, uh, awe-inspiring, all of those things. And we're going to wrap it up today, but how about before we start, uh, before we do that, we pray and ask God to be with us. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do ask, like we ask every week, that you be with us today as we finish up this series in the, uh, uh, the book of Exodus. And we ask that you would deepen our appreciation, not just of your mercy and your goodness and your justice to Israel, uh, to Israel then, but help us to appreciate and feel the weight of your goodness your mercy your justice demonstrated even for people like us now through jesus and we ask that you would guide us and deepen us by your spirit as we listen and read and if there be any among us today or listening at home anyone who is presently not in a saving relationship with you through trusting in jesus then we ask father for your favor we ask that you'd gift them the heart change and the head change necessary we ask that you give them your holy spirit that you would come and live and take up residence with them personally, deep within, that they may truly, fully and finally be able to rest in Jesus as the way to be at peace with you now, forgiven with by you now, and at peace and forgiven by you forever. We pray it all for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I did a horrible thing to you last week. If you were here, you'll remember you had that horrible feeling coming towards the end of the sermon and you realise... There's five minutes to go and he's not going to get this done. There he is. I did the old to be continued routine. You know that one? That horrible... That I did it to you and I'm sorry and I'm here to pick up where we left off on. In fact, I, I, I'm sorry because there was a real tension in the air last week uh, when, we, when we were reading Exodus. We read the, uh, the story of the golden calf. We had that problem of, as we left, how can God continue with Israel? Uh, or, or how can he actually even continue with us? And really behind that question is this tension that will come up on the screen. It's this tension of trying to reconcile how is it that God can be just, that is, genuinely punish sin and wrongdoing as it deserves. How can God be just and be merciful, forgive sin and evil and wrongdoing? How can he do both? How can that happen? How can he be both those things simultaneously? We said last week that the solution we're going to see in Jesus and in the cross of Christ, and we'll get there today. But before we get there, I want to ensure that we've really understood and felt the full weight of that tension 
of that problem of that problem rather from well basically from Exodus 32 where we finished last week all the way to the end of the the uh, book in 40 chapter 40 and not just how it sort of ramps up and ratchets up in Exodus but how it actually relates and extends as an ongoing tension and a problem not just for Israel but for all humanity before and after that point basically from the garden of Gethsemane uh, from the garden of Eden to the garden of Gethsemane to the present day and beyond so let's let's work through this you know that um, brevity is not my strong point so we really should just open our bibles i think <laughs> I start at Exodus 32 if you've got a bible there crack it open there now, I'm not going to read great slabs here because we heard it read last week, but I do want to skim over and trace over a few of the key issues that we were left with last week. Chief among them, uh, Exodus 32, chapter 7. We heard as Yahweh tells Moses as he's up the mountain uh, on Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, God tells Is- uh, uh, Moses of Israel's idolatrous stupidity that's going on down below, that whole golden calf incident. And God tells Moses at the end of verse 7 that they have become corrupt. In fact, in verse 10, we heard Yahweh dismiss Moses, suggesting that he is going to destroy Israel and start again through Moses. Essentially, he is going to make a new nation of people, starting with just Moses. Now, I want to pause for a second here. I just want to pause for a minute and just reinforce this same point again. Don't think that this is an example of Yahweh, God, capital L-O-R-D. This is not Yahweh having a hissy fit. This is not God spitting the dummy or making a rash, poor decision in the heat of emotion like I sometimes do with my kids. And if you're a dad out there with kids, you will well appreciate this, no doubt. I think if you're a mum with kids or if you are a kid, you will have known this is from your own dad or your own mum or your own, you know, someone in authority over you. In fact, it's why this title of a book makes so much sense. I think it was uh, written as a testimony to Steve Cox, um, based on the life and times. <laughs> Had to get it in there. <laughs> dad is, this is not that, okay? This is not dad just flipping his lid because of all the pressures and the stresses and you do one little thing as a kid and he just rips you. And you no, no, this is not it. Now, what God, what God is doing here is quite reasonable, his design or his intention to destroy, to destroy Israel would be a just response to all that has gone on and all that is presently going on in Israel. And furthermore, actually more than that, even if God were to execute this plan to wipe out Israel and start again with Moses, he would still be, it would still be a demonstration of his graciousness because he would still be choosing to spare Moses, who we've learned is no angel himself. He's a convicted murderer. And more than that, it would still be, Yahweh would still be upholding his covenant promises that we talked about to Abraham or Abram as he was then in Genesis 3.12 when he promised Abraham to have a, that he would have a big family, that he would bless his family and that through his family he would bless the whole nations. God would still be keeping that bargain, keeping that promise if he executes this plan. Oh, it would represent a bit of a slight setback from our perspective. You know, the whole thing about wiping out a couple of hundred thousands of Abraham's descendants and starting again from one in Moses. Yeah, a bit of a blip on the radar. But it wouldn't be a problem to God. Nor would it be an example of him reneging on his promise to Abraham. No, no, I want you to understand this clearly. If God is to go through with his intentions to destroy Israel, he would still be just He would still be gracious. He would still be faithful in doing so. And yet, 
as he says this to Moses, we have this, so we see, we get an insight into this strange little interaction between Moses and Yahweh, where Moses, what is, how does he approach God next? Did you notice this here? Have a look at verse 11. What does he seek? He seeks God's favor. I want to stress that. He seeks God's favor because Moses knows he doesn't have a legitimate case to put before God, either in terms of his own stupidity or Israel's. He cannot approach him on any other grounds. His only hope is to appeal to God's favor or mercy. In fact, Moses appeals to his knowledge of God's glory, that is his reputation in the eyes of the nations as well, as another reason for not destroying Israel. He says, don't give them, the, the uh, Egyptians a chance to be able to say, oh, it's, you know, God just delivered them with evil intent. He brought them out here to kill them. No, no, don't do that, God. Your reputation is too important. I'm seeking your favor and that you would actually uphold your reputation so that no one can speak ill of you. And Moses does this because he knows that God would be completely just, completely right and completely fair if he destroys Israel. But he also knows that God is glorious and merciful that he has shown extraordinary favor to the Israelites in everything that has just gone past. And he's free and able to do that again. But it leaves us with this strange dilemma. The dilemma we've got now is, is God going to be just in this situation or is God going to be merciful? His character is soaked through with both justice and mercy, but is he right now going to strike Israel down or relent? And if he chooses to relent, then how can he maintain his justice? And that tension only rises. It rises and rises in the rest of chapter 32. We mentioned it last week. We saw 3,000 Israelites justly killed for their rebellion in 32 verse 28. It was a merciful improvement from the hundreds of thousands who deserved death. It's just. It's uncomfortable. And we heard in verse 33 that God declared he will not leave Israel's sin unpunished. He won't just pretend it didn't happen. In verse 35, he does strike the people with a plague, killing, we're not sure how many more, Again, a demonstration of God's justice. But Aaron survives? What? Did you notice that? Were you not feeling scandalized by that? Someone actually filled this out on one of our Care and Connect cards last week. Rightly so. It is a right question to ask. Essentially, the question was, of all the people who deserved a cop it in the neck, to be judged and destroyed for their sin against God in that whole golden calf episode, how in the world did Aaron escape? Do you feel that? It's a right question. I can see God's mercy in it. Clearly Aaron does not deserve to live, but how is that justice? How can God be just and spare Aaron? It's a significant point of tension, do you agree? Okay, just calm down, Tim. I just want to step aside for a bit. Sorry. <laughs> Let me just sort of bring this in and apply this point just, just briefly to us because it's the same tension point that exists that plagues people often still today. Often it's used as, an, as a justification, if you like, for when people want to reject the God of the Bible because he seems unfair. Perhaps you know how this objection runs. Maybe some of your friends or family have put this objection or question to you. Maybe it's your question still. The question or the objection goes something like this. How can you possibly believe in the God of the Bible when he's so clearly unfair, followed by numerous examples of bad things happening to good people and good things happening to bad people? 
You, you know that routine? Have you heard that sort of question or that argument? Have you wondered it yourself? How can the God of the Bible be real when there's so much good happening to bad people and so much bad happening to good people? Did you, do you know the objection? Does it unsettle you a little bit because it's sort of, you can resonate with it a little bit? There's a kernel of truth somewhere here? How do you answer that question? Have you actually reconciled that in your own mind yet? We need to do that. And part of the way to answer this is to realize that our definition of both good and bad in those statements are way off. What I mean is, if we really understand what the Bible says about humanity, if we truly grasp God's right diagnosis of the human condition, it's like he said at the end of 32.7, that like Israel, we're corrupt to the core, sinful by nature. In fact, prove me wrong on this, please. You can no more stop sinning than a fish can stop swimming, and I'm no different. And if we genuinely understand the true horror of our inability to live rightly before God, despite his goodness, as has been so clearly and amply displayed through Israel in Exodus, then we'll understand that it's just not true that bad things happen to good people. And not because bad things don't happen. They do. I'm suggesting that from God's right perspective, there are no such thing as a good person. Now, I wanna, that's jarring, yes? Let me add this little caveat. We still use the word good, and it's not wrong to do so from a human perspective. I don't think I've met many people who come along the church that wouldn't say, hey, he's a good guy. I like, I like that guy. He's a good guy. Perfectly right and appropriate to do so. But don't now sort of project that up onto God as though he can look at any one of us and say, there's a good guy. That's not true. There's a difference here between a human, uh, a human scale and God's perfect scale. So the real scandal here is not why do bad things happen to bad people. It's why do good things happen to bad people? Why does God allow any of us to experience any level of goodness because we don't deserve it? Bad is the only category of people that exists. So the real scandal we need to wrestle here is, why haven't we all got cancer yet? How did any of us get through infancy alive? How come God allows us to enjoy the sunshine or the rain or any aspect of his greatness in creation when we've all, like Israel, continually turned our back on him, continually ignored him to live life to our own standard of right and wrong, where we've continually found ourselves caught in patterns of complaining or grumbling, and if we're desperately honest, even accusing God that he's mean and stupid? How can God allow good things to happen to bad people and still maintain that he's just? Do you feel the weight of the real problem? We'll look at this next part of the conversation between Yahweh and Moses. Have a look at there in 33. I'm going to look at verse 18 with you. But basically, after talking with Moses, God relents, 32, 14. He reconfirms that he will, in fact, go with Israel into the promised land in 33, 14. But then Moses asks this really odd question in chapter 33, verse 18. Look at it there. Moses says, now show me your glory. Now, that's a really odd question to ask. I say it's odd because God has already been, he's been constantly demonstrating to Moses his glory. From the miracles to the mercy that he has been showing time and time again, has God shown himself to be anything other than glorious? But 
this is the question. I don't think he's asking God for him to show his glory in the same way here. In fact, the Hebrew word translated here as glory has a deeper, richer, thicker meaning than just glory. In fact, a deeper uh, meaning than just our English word glory lets on. That word used to describe something that is glorious, it actually is the word for heavy, weighty. When it's used of people, it refers to the depths of someone's honor and distinction and reputation, the weight of character. So when Moses says to God, show me your glory, he's not asking for another miraculous signs. He's had them to the gunnels. He's asking God to deepen his understanding and appreciation of God's enormity, of God's honor and God's distinction as God. It's him saying to God, let me feel the full weight of who you are. Let me grasp your significance as God more rightly. Show me your glory, God. Let me, let me get a better sense of who you are. Now I want to ask, have you, have you ever asked that question of God personally? God, help me understand your enormity better. Help me understand who you are and who I am before you. Let me feel the weight of that difference, that distinction that I might not take you casually, that I might not sell you short or oversell myself. Help me feel the weight of who you are that I might know how to relate to you rightly. Have you asked that question? That is a good, right, deep question to ask and ponder. And Moses asks it here, and look at how God answers. Look at chapter 33, verse 19. And Yahweh said, I will call on my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name. You'll see it there in your Bible. as capital L-O-R-D. It is the English translation of the Hebrew word for Yahweh, I am. I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, the I am in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. That's what God says in, in response to Moses asking, show me your glory. Now, I want you to notice a couple of important things here about God's glory, about the weight of his character, things that you ought not to skip over. The first thing we've said there, Yahweh, he affirms his name as the great I am. We've said this before. We looked at it in the burning bush incidents. It's that idea that God is self-defining. There's nothing that you can possibly compare him to. He is who he is. That's his name, and that's heavy off the bat, isn't it? Think on that as you go to bed tonight. Who is God? He is who he is. That's his name. Weighty stuff. But it's not just that God is self-defining in terms of his incomparability. He's also self-determining. And what I mean by that is he is compelled by nothing and no one outside of himself, constrained by nothing other than his own character. So in verse 19, when God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, in other words, he's answering that question, why did Aaron survive after the golden calf incident? Why did Aaron survive after the golden calf incident? Because God decided to have mercy on him. Because God elected of his own free sovereign will, not compelled by anything outside of himself, but by the goodness of his own character, to have compassion and mercy on Aaron. And you want to know why that's weighty and heavy and glorious? It's because by very nature, you think that's unfair. 
Don't you? You hear that and you think that's unfair. God killed thousands over here. He sent plagues on more and he spared others like Aaron. And we hear that and we think that's unfair. Am I wrong on that? Because that's what I feel like. I read that and that's not on. That's not fair. How can you do that? And I think that all the way up to, I think, this question. Which court of appeal should I take God to? Which court of appeal, to which authority, do I pretend I can collar and drag the God of the universe? Now, I don't mean to ask that question in a cold or callous or cruel way. I genuinely want you to sort of wrestle with that question. Answer, ask and answer. Ponder that question deeply. And when you do, realize that there is no higher authority than Yahweh. He is it. That's his name. That's heavy, isn't it? And if that's not weighty enough for you, then notice that God didn't just, actually, he didn't even show Moses the full extent of his glory and weightiness. Did you notice that? Have a look again at verses 20 and 23. Yahweh says he will only let Moses see the back of his glory and awesomeness. Because to see his face, that is to see the full, to feel the full weight of his glory would kill Moses on the spot. And so he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock. He covers him with his hand. He proceeds before him, proclaims his name, and he lets Moses catch a glimpse of his weighty glory, goodness, awesomeness. And it's right that he does. In fact, it's kind of like this. This is a helpful illustration, I think. It's kind of like the sun in the sky for us. From this distance, I'm a big fan of the sun. It's presently safe. It's enjoyable. And yet I get a sense of its awesome power, especially on those 40 plus degree days in summertime. But if you ask to see that up front, up close and... No, I want to feel the size and the heat in its full... That would be death to you. (laughs) And so it would be for Moses to see the full weight of God's glory. It would kill him and so God shelters him, gives him a glimpse, so to speak, of his weightiness. It's an awesome image, isn't it? All right, it's all well and good to say that God is self-defining, self-determining, the highest authority, whether you like it or not, and too awesome and big for you to comprehend and survive. That's all true. But does that mean he can be unjust? Does that mean that God can just call good evil and evil good? Does it mean he can just ignore his, and, uh, ignore, rather, his own demand for justice just when he pleases on a whim? Is that where we're landing here? We still, haven't, we still haven't reconciled the tension. Aaron's still walking up so upright at this point. Is it because God just looked the other way? Oh, what's that over there? Yeah. Is he a bit like, you know, some of you will appreciate this. Is he doing a Sergeant Schultz on Holgan's Heroes? I know nothing. Is that what God is doing here? If you haven't watched Hogan's Heroes, do yourself a favor, you youngins. So you could be forgiven for thinking this at first because it's what it looks like. It looks like, as we read, it looks like God punishes some of the Israelites rightly for their sin and he lets others off scot-free. In fact, we don't just see him let them off scot-free. In fact, he recommits to the covenant with the remaining Israelites. We saw it there in 34 verse 10. Have a quick flick of it. We see that God promises through Moses to do wonders never before done in any other nation in all the world. That the people you live among will see how awesome is the works that I, Yahweh, will do for you. 
he promises to lavish blessing on this lot. Even more significantly, significant than that, God actually moves in with Israel, so to speak. That is, he lets them go on with the building project of the tabernacle. He still chooses to dwell with Israel, despite all that's gone on. In fact, did you notice, if you, you would have if you were at Bible study this week, did you notice chapters 35 to 39, they're almost a carbon copy of chapters 25 to 31 with one big difference. You look at the headings of those, those, those two sections, you go, this is the same. One difference. What's the big difference? Chapters 25 to 31 is describing God giving Moses the pattern for the tabernacle so that he can come and dwell with Israel. Chapters 35 to 39 describe Israel completing the tabernacle according to God's plan and pattern so that he can come and live with them. God still chooses to to move in. Have a look at it there, in fact. 39 verse 32. Just check it out here. This is where where that section finishes. So all the works on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was completed. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. It reads like things are going well. This seems like a real turn of events. Israel have come to their senses. They've started to obey. So much so that God moves in with them. In fact, have a look at chapter 40, the the last few verses of Exodus. Chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord, Yahweh, filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites... Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day that lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Do you see how things are seeming on the up and up? It appears it is only onwards and upwards from this point forward. God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle. They're listening and they're obeying. He doesn't set out, they don't move. He sets out, they shift. Him setting the direction, leading from the front, all hunky-dory, la-di-da. Sounds good, looks good, but where's the justice? Do you see, we still haven't reconciled the tension. I'm not satisfied with this yet. Why is Aaron allowed to live? Why have so many Israelites seemingly been the object of God's mercy and gotten off scot-free for their sin? It's not justice. Well, here's the big end of what I want you to realize today. Convinced not by me because I shout a lot, convinced by Scripture, convinced by this, this account here, It's that God is merciful to whomever he chooses to be merciful, but he does not do this at the expense of looking over his own justice. Let me say it this way. No one who receives the mercy of God gets it scot-free, so to speak. No one gets it at no price paid. It's just that they don't pay the price personally. You see, this is the tension that's been highlighted so clearly as we finish Exodus, trying to understand how God can reconcile his justice and his mercy. And it's not answered here for us in Exodus. It's just ramped up further. And it's not answered through the history of Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, it'll only increase the tension as Israel continue to spiral out of control in terms of their rebellion. Rob will touch on this a little next week as he helps us understand more about the inadequacy of the tabernacle and its big brother, the temple to solve the problem of Israel. It doesn't work. And it's not answered by the prophets. It's not answered by the priests. It's not answered by the sacrifices. It is only fully, finally, and publicly reconciled in Jesus and in his death on the cross. This is what you must come to see, friends. Aaron's sin with the golden calf did not go unnoticed by God. 
It did not get swept aside as if by some magic wand. It got the treatment it deserved, the full force of God's wrath. It's just that God didn't tip it out on Aaron. He tipped it out on himself in the person and work of Jesus. Fully God and fully man. Your sin will not go unpaid for, friends. Two options to pay it. You will pay it or Christ will pay it on your behalf. Aaron's sin and all the Israelites' sin, all those who were spared alongside him by God's mercy in Exodus, their rebellion did not go unchecked or undealt with. The due penalty for such shameless treason was paid in full, but not with Aaron's blood, not with Israel's blood, with Jesus' blood. And the, true, the same will be true of you, should you trust in Christ. This is how Paul puts it. Have a look at this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Should it come up on the screen? We're going to 2 Corinthians next in our sermon series, so I'm not going to waste all my bullets just now. This is how Paul puts it, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what this means. It means that God the Father dealt with all his right anger for Aaron's sin, for Israel's sins, for all the sins of his people. He dealt with his right anger, punishing it with the death it deserved, but he did not bring that sentence down not on Aaron's head, not on Israel's head, but legitimately, legally, and justly on Jesus' head, who as the perfect man and the eternal God had the right, the capacity, the power, and the willingness to satisfy it fully. It's in Jesus' death as that perfect representative and substitute, God in the flesh, fully man, that we see the high point of God's justice and mercy come together. God hasn't looked the other way on sin, friends. He came in the flesh to pay the penalty due, to satisfy his justice. In fact, I did make mention of this, but it's not by accident that in John, uh, John 1, when John talks about the word become flesh and made his dwelling among us, is often the translation. Do you know what the word is there? He tabernacled amongst us. This is huge. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That is not by accident. God has come to live with his people in a far more profound way than the tabernacle, the temple could ever provide. And he did that so that he might live the life that we should have lived, that he might die the death that we deserve to die. And in so doing, satisfying God's justice, and legitimately finding a way to be merciful to guilty sinners because Jesus' death pays the debt. In fact, this is why, this is the only way that you can reconcile what God says to Moses. It's that curious thing that he says as he passes before Moses in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Just look at it as we finish up here. 34, 6 and 7. In fact, I won't read it out. In, I'll sort of, oh no, maybe I will. It's only in looking at the cross of Christ that we can reconcile what God says of himself in 34, 6 and 7 when he says that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. God is that and yet he has not left the guilty unpunished. He hasn't left the guilty unpunished. He punished the sins of all the guilty who are looking to him, but he punished them in Christ. 
a willing and a worthy sacrifice on our behalf. Friends, that's the only way to reconcile the tension between God's justice and his mercy and it's in the, in the death of Jesus which secures both. Friends, we're about to celebrate the enormity of this in the Lord's Supper. We do this at the end of every sermon series. It reminds us of the highest high point in human history which ironically comes from the lowest low point in human history, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the lowest low point. And it's the mercy that is displayed to Aaron and the Israelites in Exodus that is still on offer to every person of every age, including today. It's that in Jesus, God stands to offer a full and free pardon to all who know they need it. He offers mercy and forgiveness to those who recognize they're guilty and undeserving. He comes to pay the penalty of the debt due He doesn't do this by cancelling justice. Instead, he asks you to recognise and relish in the fact that he paid the price for you personally in Jesus. My question to you is, are you trusting Jesus like that? Are you trusting God like this in Christ? Have you found this peace with God through Jesus? Not pretending you're innocent, but knowing you're forgiven because of him knowing that your sins have been fully paid for, punished personally by Jesus, if you're trusting in him, and as a result, praising him for his justice and mercy, praising him for the weight of his glory, asking him to radically reorient your whole heart, head, mind, all of your goals, your priorities, every aspect of your life in, re- in, the, in response to the magnificence of his grace to you in Jesus. It's the only fitting response. What I'm I'm delighted to say is why we're growing as a church. It's why we've got so many people joining us here at church, joining our serving teams at church, wanting to be a part of what God is doing here as a family of God because we've come to realize with increasing measure the enormity of what God has done for us in Jesus. And in response, we want others to come to know the same. And it all centers on Jesus. He's the answer of Exodus. Exodus.